please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's nice to be with you again, to see, to see some old faces, <laughs> or at least well-known faces, and uh, <laughs> to also see some, some new faces. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, it's my privilege to be here um, speaking and preaching to you. Um, I'm the Reverend Sean Templeton, a vicar soon to be rector of Lakewood Anglican Church. <laughs> I'll say more about that later during the announcements. But why don't we begin by looking at today's texts, which is actually a continuation in a series that I believe you've been going through called No Condemnation in the book of Romans, St. Paul's epistle to the church in Rome. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 18, which Iris read for us this morning. Iris, you might think that was a mistake, how you got tripped up, but you got tripped up right at the core of the passage that I'm preaching on, and you read it twice, that part, and so maybe it was the Holy Spirit, I don't know. <laughs> it works. It's really important as we look at verse 18 that we see this as a continuation of what you've been talking about, right? More importantly, what St. Paul's been writing about. So St. Paul's been writing about how in baptism we're given this incredible gift as Christians. We just finished hearing about how we are sons of God and therefore heirs. Look back, actually, at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, and then today's passage begins. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's stop there. So what is St. Paul not saying here? He is not saying that suffering doesn't matter. He is not saying, have a stiff upper lip and get through it. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying or diminishing other people's suffering. Right? But notice, unless you read the prior verses, you might get that impression. After all, St. Paul has suffered more than any of us. Well, maybe I won't speak for you, but I dare say more than me. Right? This is the man who's been beaten to the point of having to leave cities. right? And here St. Paul is saying he considers that suffering as nothing compared to the future glory that's to be revealed in him by God. So he's not diminishing suffering, but rather he's drawing a comparison 
that as bad as this is, the suffering that he's gone through and that the Roman church is going through, it is nothing compared to what God has in store. This morning, I plan to elucidate as best I can four things. Number one, what is this future glory of God? What is this future glory of God that St. Paul's talking about? Number two, the reality of redemption instills hope in the Christian. Now, that's a longer one. The reality of redemption instills hope in the Christian. Number three, the Christian is not left alone in his or her transformation. And number four, this transformation brings an effect or ought to bring an effect in the Christian's life. Okay, so really quickly. What is the future glory? The reality of redemption instills hope. The Christian is not left alone in his transformation. And the effect, it should have an effect on his Christian living. So let's start with the first point. What is this future glory? What is this future glory? Well, St. Paul tells us. Look at verse 23, the second half of it. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Stop there. So what is this? Our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. That is the future glory. What's St. Paul saying about that? Because as you look at that, you might be saying, well, wait, we just said that we are adopted sons. We just said that we have this redemption. So now why, St. Paul, are you shifting to say that we are eagerly awaiting for it? There's something to that, as you might suspect. What does it mean to be redeemed? What does it mean to be redeemed? We don't really use that in modern parlance, our, our common street talk anymore, right? We don't say re- the word redeem too much, do we? Can you think of any instances? I couldn't. I mean, we might have said at one point that we redeem coupons or that we redeem maybe a gift card or a gift certificate. We might, but we probably wouldn't use the word, right? But you, that probably kind of makes sense to you. Um, the word redeem is actually a very technical word in the Greek. It's apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. I know it sounds like a disease, doesn't it? <laughs> but it? But it's actually something good. It's to be released by payment, literally. To be released by payment is what redeem means. So a better modern understanding of this might be to use the word ransom, right? You've probably heard the the term ransom, at least on the news, if not used it. Thank God we don't worry too much about being ransomed, right, here in the United States. But that's not the case around the world. Father Joshua J.E., who was here last last week with you, uh, wrote me this past week and said, I thank God that my wife made it back from the funeral of my father without being kidnapped. 
because that's a real issue in Nigeria. It happens all the time. I'm reading a book right now by Archbishop, I think it's pronounced Caddy or Katie, um, and Archbishop Katie, you might rem remember, a few years ago was kidnapped while en route along the road in Nigeria. He was kidnapped and he was held for nine days. And they held him and demanded a ransom for him. He was held in the jungle. But did you know that you as Christians have been ransomed? Did you know that someone has paid your ransom, if you're a Christian, without exception? It's true. You've been ransomed because you've been redeemed. Sometimes as Christians, especially as those who were converted a long time ago or who were blessed to be baptized as babies and grown up in the church, forget that they've been ransomed. We forget that we've been redeemed. We forget what captivity looks like because we've lived in freedom for so long, right? Now I'm talking about spiritual captivity and spiritual freedom, but it greatly reflects physical freedom and physical captivity. What does captivity look like? Well, physically, it looks very clear, right? You know when you've been taken captive. You know when you've been kidnapped. I'll read you a section of this book that I'm reading about Archbishop Katie. He writes this after he was kidnapped. As all the rains that fell during that period fell on me, I was drenched in my Episcopal wares, that is, his bishop's robes, and my underwear was not spared. They kept me very cold. It seemed my underwear becoming an issue for me because they participated in keeping me uncomfortable. After a time, I removed my singlet to ease my, com my discomfort. On one of the rainy days, I slept beside the Indian bamboo, the den of reptiles, and was very cold. I was not allowed to snore. Master, if you, if you reveal us by your snore, we shall shoot you first before they kill us, said the guard. That day, I was sleeping on a wet floor. In fact, one day, it rained cats and dogs, and even my guards felt bad for me. I was lying in a pool of water. I had no choice. That's captivity, right? But you know what? Spiritual captivity is not any better than that. It's just not as obvious. Spiritual captivity, however, has the results of being worse. For as scripture says, while they can harm the body in this world, the soul that goes beyond is more important. And we forget what spiritual captivity looked like. We see it around us, but we're not really a part of it. We can't know it the way someone who's captive knows it. The spiritually captive person suffers isolation, is confused by sexuality in his or her identity, is constantly in fear, is in anxiety, is beholden to, to addiction, rather, is stuck in pride and self-loathing is trapped in hate-induced depression or rage, 
I could go on and on, right? You know these things. You see them around you. You see people trapped in them. But you don't necessarily know their full stories because you can't. You are no longer in such spiritual captivity. But reflecting back on his life before conversion and on his ongoing battle in himself, even after being ransomed by God, St. Paul, a couple weeks ago, probably in your study, in chapter 7, verse 24, writes this. He says, I was a captive to the law of sin. I was a captive to the law of sin before Jesus. But as God has set him free through Jesus has purchased him. God has paid the ransom. And St. Paul later succinctly reflects on this, writing to the Corinthian church, saying in chapter 6, verse 19, in his first letter to the Corinthians, you, Christian, are not your own. You were bought with a price. You see the theme again of being ransomed. The reality is, friends, that redemption, when we understand it, instills hope. Redemption, when we really understand it to be this ransom, this freedom from captivity, instills hope in the Christian. And that hope that comes with it bolsters our faith. As a son or daughter of God, you have that hope. And interestingly enough, as a son or daughter of God, whether you recognize it or not, you have that hope. It's stuck in you. By whom? Through Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, by God. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, as I continue reading this book about the archbishop and his captivity, what you're studying in this sermon series is what kept him going in his physical captivity. It's what kept him going as he lay in the pool of water, knowing that there was a future hope, knowing that even if the guards shot him for snoring, there was a future glory that no one could take away from him. The Christian has that hope, whether he or she knows it or not. But we ought to know it, is what St. Paul here is saying. In the ancient Easter vigil, that service of welcoming the newly baptized into the church, there's an old chant It goes back hundreds, thousands of years. It's called the Exalted. Has anyone ever heard it sung? It's a beautiful chant in the vigil. Of course, my wife has. Not very well, I would add, but she's heard it sung. Um, <laughs> here's a line from it that captures this idea. Our birth would have been no gain had we not been redeemed. How wonderful and beyond our knowing, O oh God, is your mercy and loving kindness to us that to redeem a slave, you gave a son. When we come to that part of the chant, I always am taken aback by that line. That to redeem a slave, you gave a son. That to ransom a slave, you gave a son. Who's the slave? Me. Who's the son? Jesus. Friends, do you see how that instills hope? Do you see how that instills hope? Hope. I'm sure you've heard that word used before, too. It's another one that we use that's in a very different way than Scripture uses it, right? That passage that, that um, Iris read twice, right, to underline for us, talks about this hope, right? 
look at it. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. We wait with patience. The idea of hope that we use in our culture today is kind of a fluffy, almost meaningless word, right? How do we use the word hope? You're just in, in our common language. You might say, well, I hope I get there in time. I hope there's not traffic. I hope that person comes to the party. I hope I get a pay raise. <laughs> yeah, you don't pay my salary, so it's okay, right? I can say that. Uh, but the way we use this word in modern English is not how the Bible uses the word. We hope it's kind of a throwaway word. It's, it's synonymous with just kind of desiring something. Like, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. I hope it does. The Bible uses it in a very different way, as you might have guessed from this usage, right? That this hope is secure because it's built on the promises of God, right? It's not wishful thinking. It's something that God has said and will bring to fruition. My wife went to Hope College, right? And if you've ever been to Hope College, there's this giant ship anchor in front of the, of the, the main hall. I'd, I'd call it Founders Hall, but it's probably not called that. But it's in front of the main hall of the college. And if you don't know the Bible, you'd be like, why is this giant ship anchor here? But in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews describes hope as an anchor. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, we read, We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. That's Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. Isn't that a powerful image? This idea that Jesus is like the anchor that is before the throne of God. And that is your hope. Not just on his promise, but that he has gone before you and done it. He's there right now interceding for you. That is your and my hope. It's that kind of hope that you have as a Christian. That's a strong hope. That's a certain hope. Yeah, we can't see it, but we know that it is, right? But the Christian also has a hope in future glory because Christ has gone before us in that, as the forerunner, as that text just said, because Christ has been risen from the dead, so we know that we have this adoption, so we know that we have this redemption. God will not abandon the Christian is one of the main themes of the text today. In holy baptism, he has renewed the Christian with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You, friends, are signed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are made regenerate by God himself. The Holy Spirit is in you, right? He is in you. He is transforming you. 
He has changed your identity. And he will bring you into conformity with Christ. That's the accomplishment of the, of, that's accomplished rather, in the Holy Spirit with the church. Why is it the gathering together is so important? Why is it that we listen to the word of God? Why is it that you endure long sermons? Very good sermons, but long sermons. <laughs> Why is it that you receive the sacraments every week? Why is it that you're confirmed? Because it's all about being in community with the Holy Spirit and growing in him, by him, with one another. The Holy Spirit desires for you to be transformed, so much so that he prays on your behalf when you can't. Do you know that? He prays on your behalf when you can't. Again, look at the, what the passage says today. It's very amazing. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called to his purpose. Earlier in the passage, in verse 22, he says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the birth pains of the Spirit. And then he says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. Right? And then there's this strange line about the Holy Spirit using groanings too deep for words in verse 26. What is that? Some people think that's speaking in tongues. I don't think it is in this case because it actually applies to all Christians and not all Christians speak in tongues. This is the Holy Spirit groaning in us, for us, desiring for us to be transformed into the image of Christ as our advocate, as our paraclete, Scripture calls it in, in John's Gospel, to be with us, to intercede for us, that we might look more like Christ. This verse isn't talking about strange languages. It's actually a Greek word, stenagmas, stenagmas, which actually is, means to sigh or to groan, just like creation is sighing or groaning in eagerness. And so the Holy Spirit, like a parent, groans that we might do the right thing to do. That we, that, that we might do the right thing and become conformed to Christ. Um, Bridget's too small, so I can still use her for sermon illustrations. Um, so the other day, Bridget has taken to this screaming, right? And she, we put her in her high chair, and she screams. And it's just something two-year-olds do. And she's old enough to understand, and so we've started disciplining her, which we don't like to do, but we know we need to do. And um, so when she screams... Leah goes over to her, or me, if I'm in the room, and says, Bridget, you are not to scream. Do you understand? And she usually goes, ah, or nods her head, right? And we know that she understands. She says, if you scream again, you will be chastised. <laughs> she does. <laughs> She's been trained. <laughs> and so... Of course, she's a two-year-old. She does it again. She gets chastised. 
She cries. We walk away. We come back and explain that we love her, give her a hug, tell her that we still love her, and, and that she needs to change her behavior. Why do we do that? Because we know that as human beings, the screaming of a two-year-old becomes the brattiness of a six-year-old, becomes the rebelliousness of a teenager, becomes the self-destruction and destructiveness of an adult, right? If you don't start soon, you put yourself on a bad trajectory. Now, the other day, Leo had done this, and I was in the kitchen washing dishes and listening to Bridget cry. And uh, Leah came in and sighed and just, oh. And I looked at her and I said, slow learner that one, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> and Leah said, yes. And she said something very profound next. She said, but you know what? I think that's how God feels about us. And I thought to myself, you know what? You're right, because that's what this passage in Romans is saying. That word for sigh is that same idea of Leah sighing that she had to discipline the child, our child whom we love once again. That's how God feels. That's how eagerly the Holy Spirit wants us to be driven to conformity with Jesus Christ because he knows that it's for our own good. He knows what's best for us. And so he is sighing in us and praying with us that we might get there someday. <laughs> that we might get there someday. It captures that idea. The Christian, friends, is never alone in his or her transformation. St. Paul writes this not to discourage the faithful, but to assure us that God will not give up on us. That even when we don't know how to pray, God will cause, will cause the Holy Spirit within us to pray even in things that we don't understand, even for things that we don't understand, God has set us aside as his sons and daughters, as covenant people, and is with us. And here's the cool part that comes next, that the church has been predestined by the Holy Spirit to be conformed into the image of God. St. Paul writes later to the Ephesian church, and it's in the context of speaking about relationships between husbands and wives, this. Husbands, love your wives. But here's the theology behind it. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, and without blemish. That's Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 25. Notice what's, what's he saying here. He's saying that God has promised to present the church, the group of Christians, before God unblemished, having washed you. How have you been washed? Baptism by the blood of Christ. Yes. Having been washed with water and the word. With water and the word. So in conclusion, what does this say to the original readers? What does it say to the original readers? Well, St. Paul is here cheering on the church in Rome in the late 50s. What's going on in the church of Rome? 
has uh, has uh, uh, Gene given you any background on this yet? Yeah, they're being persecuted. Yeah, and the J- the Jews had been expelled from the city. They're expelled from the city in the late uh, before the late fifties, and so here you have the church in Rome developing with the Gentile church, and the Jews who became Christians are out of the city. And the Jews now are trickling back in, but the problem is you've got the Gentile church and the Jewish church, and they aren't getting along very well because they're in different places. And one of the things that Jesus, or that Paul rather, St. Paul is saying here is that they are united in Jesus. They are united in baptism. And when they go through the sufferings from Emperor Claudius and subsequent emperors, they know that they have this future glory. Of course, the suffering they're going through is terrible, but there's something beyond it. St. Paul's reminding them that they're united in that baptism together for that suffering. He's reminding them that they have to cling to this hope. So what does this say to the church today? Well, when we look at the church through history, we see that the problems of Rome never went away. They just keep coming back up. There's exterior persecution. There's internal divides. There's suffering in the church. These things are always going on in the church. Writing 300 years later, St. Gregory of Nyssa, that's Turkey, says this. He says, Jesus makes those who share with him in the like birth of baptism to be his own brethren and become the firstborn of those who after him are born of water and the Spirit. So in our suffering, we are brethren with Christ. Part of being a Christian is to suffer. The church still faces persecution today all over the world. As I've told you from that book, from my own assistant priest's story about his family, persecution goes on. Churches are bombed routinely. Pastors are kidnapped and jailed. People's speech is restricted. And despite all of that, there is the certainty of hope in being adopted as sons and daughters. So what effect ought that to have on Christian living? What effect ought that to have on Christian living? Well, God's promise for future glory should shape how we live today. As American Christians, we struggle too much putting off eternity and living comfortably here and now. We're blessed not to know external persecution, but we still have present sufferings and occasions for inconvenience. These test us, these sufferings, not just in our faith, but in our hope. What I mean is this. If we're unable to persist in hope when we're faced with inconveniences or discomfort, what are we going to do when real suffering comes? And the real suffering will come. It might not come in my lifetime or your lifetime. It might not come externally, politically. But real suffering will come to you in your old age or in disease or in emotion, or in broken relationships. Real suffering will come to you. And if you don't know how to suffer in small things, how are you going to suffer in the big things? The martyrs, Andrew and Peter and John, well, not John, Andrew and Peter and James started off as fishermen and ended as martyrs. That change didn't happen overnight. 
quite simply, if we don't focus on the future glory in the small sufferings we have, we won't develop the habit of turning to Jesus when things get really hard. Jesus said, and we repeat at the beginning of every service, that the greatest commandment is this, the summation of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, soul, mind, strength, right? Depending on whether you're looking at Matthew or Mark. Ask yourself, would I have enough certain hope in the future glory as a Christian to be a Christian in China or Iran, to risk imprisonment for going to a Bible study or class or even owning a Bible? We complain about attending church because we've had a tiring week or we need to go grocery shopping or it conflicts with something in our life or we need to meet someone for breakfast. Ask yourself, would I have enough certain hope in future glory to attend church where I might be kidnapped or killed? Could I turn to God? Secondly, in the second half of the summary of the law, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Our present day suffering comes to us here in America in less obvious ways too. But we're confronted nonetheless with as our culture weakens and draws away from divine law, we will continue to suffer as Christians. And therefore, our hope must be firmly anchored. For example, are you willing to suffer and be called a bigot because you long to help people be free from spiritual captivity in the devil, in their sexual brokenness, which our society demands that we celebrate? but that we know is evil or in their identity that our society brings about satanic delusions about things like gender that are perfectly obvious. Are we willing to suffer that way? Are we willing to suffer enough? And I use it loosely. When our neighbor comes over with a beer in his hand falling into alcoholism, because his marriage is falling apart and he doesn't know who to turn to. Are we willing to suffer by putting aside our plans and talking to him and spending time with him to tell him that there's a better way and that this alcoholism isn't going to solve your problem? Are we willing to risk that? Are we willing to give sacrificially of our time and our finances to help our neighbors who truly are weak and vulnerable and in captivity, are we willing to speak for unborn children? Are we willing to speak for broken families, for children who are refugees? Are we willing to expend mental and emotional energy comforting those around us who are mourning, who see no hope? Are we willing to take the time? Are we willing to suffer? to help them out of captivity, to show them Jesus who can pay the ransom. You see, these are not things of yesteryear or of oceans away. These are things in your neighborhoods. These are things in your families. These are not persecutions as we typically think about them. And yet we see, we see these tough things every day. And do we shrink away from them? Not to incite people? Or are we willing to bring that hope 
Are we secure in that hope as a son or daughter of Christ? Or are we too secure in our earthly comforts? I say this not to convict you or condemn you. After all, Romans 8.1 says, for those in Christ there is no condemnation. But I say this to you and to me because I look at myself and I say, I don't live up to that. I don't live up to that. I don't understand hope enough to always live into that. And yet, that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. So friends, as you go forward in this week, I want you to consider what it is the hope that you have. Remember, no matter what, that hope is secure in Jesus. But live into it. Let the Holy Spirit work for it through you. And let him guide you in those situations. And in whatever suffering that comes your way, turn to him and rest secure in his grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.